0: Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. In light of today being our observance of the Lord's Supper, we're taking a time out on our series in 2 Timothy. And uh, we will return to that uh, in a couple of weeks. But this morning, uh, we're in Isaiah 52 and 53. Looking at the subject matter, Jesus paid it all and that'll be our hymn of invitation also this morning Jesus paid it all so find Isaiah 52 beginning in verse 13 and if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word Isaiah 52 verse 13 and following and then we'll read all of chapter 53 behold my servant shall act wisely he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many we're astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they shall see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, this morning as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, help us to understand afresh and anew about the substitutionary atonement. That all we like sheep have gone astray, and yet the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Lord, if it were not for Jesus, none of us would have eternal life. None of us would have peace with you or be reconciled to you. God, help us to understand that. To be grateful for what we have in Jesus our Lord. And to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Lord, may we not be conformed to this world. But may we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness. To to shine His marvelous light. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, everybody loves a good story. Men love a good story when it comes to going to the movies. Guys, what kind of story do we like? An action movie. Somebody said in the early service, a movie that has a lot of bang, bang, shoot 'em up. We like those action movies. What are the ladies like? the love stories, the romance, right? Connie said this past Monday night, the women in the book club who went to see the movie based on a book that they'd read, all the ladies decided that it was indeed a chick flick and that had any of their husbands gone with them, by the end of the movie, they would have been absolutely bored to tears. Everybody loves a good story. Folks, you don't get any better than that found, though, here in Isaiah chapter 53. It has mystery. It has action. Somebody is going to be betrayed. Somebody is going to be violently murdered. But behind it all is love. In fact, the greatest love of all, God's love. And so there is action, there is mystery, and there is love all rolled into one. Now Isaiah 53 is the record of Jesus suffering for our sin and paying the penalty for our sin 750 years before the event even happened. And that makes this chapter a prophecy. One of the chief prophecies in the Old Testament of the death of Christ. Folks, I don't know if you realize it or not, but there are more details given in Isaiah 53 and also Psalm 22, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, more details about what happened at the cross than what we find even in any of the four Gospels. Isaiah 53 has been called many things. It's been called the heart of the Old Testament the loftiest peak of messianic prophecy and it's also been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament now what we see here in this passage is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for our sins it's much like what Paul said in Second Corinthians 5.21 when he wrote for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin." So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is essentially the point of Isaiah 53. Now in Isaiah 53 we're going to see three things this morning. Number one the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Number two the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And number three the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Look with me first at the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. The exaltation. It's kind of tragic in a way I guess that chapter 53 doesn't begin back in verse 13 of chapter 52. Now I trust that you know that the chapter divisions and the verse numbers aren't a part of the original inspired text. They were added later. It would be good if chapter 53 would have begun back in chapter 52 at verse 13. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, uh, they understand. Right away, before we get into the painful verses... Of chapter 53 we are promised that the suffering of Christ is not going to be in vain In a way the flow of thought here can be like reading a mystery novel Where you're on the edge of your seat and you turn to the last chapter to see how how it's all going to end Have you ever done that before reading a book? Sure you have And then after you discover the ending, you turn back again to wherever you were and you pick up reading again and you're relieved that it had a happy ending. Well, that's sort of how this is. God gives us the end of the story. He takes us up to the mountaintop. He helps us to see the beautiful view from there. And then he takes us back down through the valley. And then by the end of chapter 53, we're going to be back up on the mountaintop again. In verse 13 he says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Despite all the insults they hurled at Jesus there on the cross. Despite all the mockery and everything that that they did to him. The very worst that man could have done to the Lord Jesus, despite all of that, we are assured here that his mission will not fail. It will be a success. Verse 15, he says, he'll sprinkle many nations. Now that's Old Testament language for atonement. Remember what they would do when they would slaughter the animal and they would catch the blood? The the high priest would dip some hyssop. The hyssop was a plant with a dense nature to it. He would dip the the, uh, hyssop in the blood and he would sprinkle the altar and sprinkle the people. And on the day of atonement he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would even sprinkle the mercy seat with the hyssop. It's a reference to Jesus' blood being shed. The ultimate sacrifice that would put an end to all other sacrifices. The writer of Hebrews had this in mind in Hebrews chapter 9. Listen to what he writes there. He said, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more... Will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so his blood shed and sprinkled is going to be better than anything that they knew about in the old covenant. His sacrifice is going to be complete. The writer goes on to say here that kings will shut their mouths on account of him. We know today that world leaders oftentimes boast. But there is a psalm that describes what is going to happen with world leaders. It's it's the second psalm. Listen to, to this particular psalm. He says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord scoffs at them Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earth.'" and where now therefore O kings, show discernment take warning O judges of the earth worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled but how blessed are all who take refuge in him Folks, we look at the world today and the leaders of this world think they're in charge. But they're not in charge. There is coming a day that all the world will see who Jesus is. Even all the leaders of this world who have... Done things to oppose God's Messiah. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that there is coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will be exalted. And that's what he's telling us here. That God's King, God's Messiah, God's Son will, in fact, will indeed be exalted. The exaltation of the Lord Jesus. Then in chapter 53, we go into the valley. I want you to see, secondly, the humiliation of the Lord Jesus. He begins there by saying who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Folks who would have believed that God was going to do things this way? I suppose that's why that in the, in the birth narratives of the Gospels, specifically Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, we come to the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus and it's strange to see how not even the religious leaders of the day so much as even went down to Bethlehem to investigate the report of the Magi. Nobody went. Nobody seemed interested Even though they knew the prophecy in the book of Micah And yet nobody went I think the reason why perhaps is because They were expecting the Messiah when God sent him That he would come in great pomp and circumstance If he was born to someone he would be born to a king At least to a prince He would be born with wealth. He would be born to nobility. He would have great position in his life even from day one of his earthly life. That's what they were expecting. They weren't expecting the Messiah to be born somewhere like Bethlehem and be raised in Nazareth, born to somebody like Mary. That's not what they were anticipating. And so as he says here beginning in chapter 53, who has believed what he's heard from us? Nobody seemed to believe. And you know it's the same way today. People hear the gospel and they don't believe. The preaching of the gospel either produces scorn or a big yawn, that's about all. What is remarkable about this is that the gospel is the story of God redeeming a people for himself and yet, strangely enough, people don't care. They don't believe. He grew up before him, he says, like a tender shoot. Jesus was the son of Mary and Joseph growing up in the quiet surroundings of Nazareth. He grew up in an ordinary place. He didn't grow up in Athens, the intellectual center of that day. He didn't grow up in Rome, the most powerful city of the day. He didn't even grow up in Jerusalem. He grew up in Nazareth. You remember Nathaniel asked the question in John chapter one when, uh, after Peter and Andrew come to a, a, a knowledge of the Messiah and they go and tell others and they and they find Nathaniel and they tell Nathaniel, "Come quickly, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth." You remember what Nathaniel said? "Huh? Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" They just didn't believe. It's not what anybody expected. In the minds of the men of the day, he was supposed to ride in and overthrow the Roman yoke, kind of like Barabbas. Remember Barabbas at the end of the Gospels? He was a renegade, a zealot, a violent man. He was a warrior. And they were expecting that Jesus would be more like that, and he would ride into Jerusalem, and right there on the spot he would overthrow Rome, and he would set up the king of uh, the, the the throne of David, and he would be king and and reign from that time forward. That's what they were expecting. That's why they were singing what they were singing on Palm Sunday. As Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, they were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were basically saying, hey, this is it. He's riding into Jerusalem. He is going to defeat Rome. He's going to set up the throne of David right now. Hey, this is it. This is the day our ancestors even have waited upon. And the day is today. But when Jesus rode into Jerusalem not on a stallion but on a donkey He came as a prince of peace Just like the prophets had said They weren't expecting that And so by the end of the week The very voices that had been crying out Hosanna are crying out instead Crucify him, crucify him They didn't believe They didn't believe the report As verse 1 says They didn't think that God was going to work this way. And folks, don't we do some of that even today when God doesn't work according to our expectations? What do people do? They don't believe. Some people don't believe because they think, how in the world could a loving and all-powerful God allow evil and suffering in the world? Well, the Bible gives us the answers to that, but unbelievers ask, how could God allow something like that? And so they don't believe. They don't believe because God has not acted according to their expectations. It's the same way today as it was back then. And that's what Isaiah is talking about here. Not only was he like a tender root, but also like a root out of dry ground. The spiritual climate of the day was dry. Folks, think about it. It had been 400 years since they had last heard from a prophet. We speak of the 400 silent years between the Old Testament, the closing pages of the Old Testament, and the opening pages of the New Testament. 400 silent years. And you read some of the history about what went on during that period. In fact, that even began after they came back from exile. They came back from exile, they rebuilt the temple and they were expecting the glory of God to move in and and it didn't happen that way. And they grew cold, they grew complacent. The spiritual climate was dry. And it continued that way for 400 years until Matthew 1 opens up. A root out of dry ground. Spiritually dry climate. And slowly the root grows in the land. For 30 years the only thing we see about Jesus is when he he was a 12 year old boy in the temple. Things were quiet and slow the way we would look at it today. The way we would judge it. Only after 30 years does Jesus begin his public ministry. And slowly a few begin to see it. Nicodemus goes to Jesus by night And says teacher we know that you have come from God A few began to see Not many but a few He says here, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing about Jesus that would have made people just normally gravitate to him. You remember Saul in the Old Testament when the people said to Samuel, give us a king? And they began looking for a king and and Saul approached. And when the people saw Saul, he was a head taller than everybody else. He was the proverbial tall, dark, and handsome. And when everybody saw, saw Saul, they said, He's the man. He's our king. Make him our ruler. They were judging on appearance. And of course, we know what a terrible disappointment he turned out to be. And so, God, when he sent his Messiah, there was nothing about him that would make people naturally gravitate to him. God didn't want his son judged by mere human appearances. One writer said the late night talk show host would never have considered booking him for an interview. Folks, already it was bad enough why some people followed Jesus. Some people saw the miracles he had had done. And they were chasing after him simply for the sake of miracles. Simply because he fed them. And they wanted their bellies full. And so they chased after him for that reason and no more. They already followed him. Many of them already followed him for the wrong reasons. People today, again, are like that. They follow for the sensational. They're attracted to that. And God didn't want that. In his humiliation, Jesus was ordinary. I wonder what we would think of him today. If Jesus walked into the building and somehow or another his his deity was hidden from us and all we saw was his humanity Would we even recognize Him? What would we even think of Him? His humiliation. But the third thing I want you to see with me this morning is the substitution of the Lord Jesus. Begin reading with me there in verse... Three, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The iniquity of us all. We see the suffering that was involved in his substitution for our sin. He was despised and forsaken of men. Think of all the times in the gospels that men despised him and turned against him. The religious leaders on one occasion said what? They said that he had a demon. His own siblings, his half-brothers and sisters, were told in the New Testament, did not come to believe upon him until after the resurrection. He was despised when he said in John 6, I'm the bread of life, those who eat my flesh shall never hunger again. The Bible says the multitudes judged that to be a very difficult saying, and they all turned away from him. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Are you going to turn away too? And they said, Lord, to to whom would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But everybody else despised him and they rejected him. He writes here he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew the pain of both body and soul inflicted upon him by others. He knew the sorrow of people turning away from him. He knew what grief was like because remember when his friend Lazarus died and Mary and Martha were there at the tomb crying with everybody else. The Bible says Jesus saw their grief and he wept. He's acquainted with all of our weaknesses and all of our temptations, yet without sin. I'm glad he was, because that means whatever I go through, whatever you go through, guess what? He understands. The Bible says today he's at the right hand of God and he's preparing a place for us. And there at the right hand of God he's our advocate and along with the Holy Spirit he's our intercessor. And because he's walked in your shoes... He's lived as a man on the face of this earth. He was fully God, but also fully man. And because he he came as a man too in the incarnation, he knows exactly what it's like to go through the pains and the weaknesses and the sufferings that other men go through. And so he's our sympathetic high priest. He understands your weaknesses, he understands your needs. He came to lowly surroundings. He experienced temptation. He experienced death. He experienced loneliness. He experienced rejection. He experienced mockery. He experienced all of that for you and for me. But look beginning at verse 4. The picture becomes clear. None of his suffering was because of his own sin. Folks, how did they look at things back then? They looked at things back then that if you're going through any kind of suffering or hardship it must be because you have committed wrongdoing. You've committed sin. You've done something to bring your suffering on yourself. Remember Job? God said that Job was a righteous man. And yet, Job's friend said, Job, you're experiencing everything you're experiencing because you've evidently done something wrong. Job, what have you done? Job, you deserve this. That was their thinking back then. And if we're not careful, it can be our thinking today, can it? If somebody goes through some kind of trial or tribulation, we might secretly think in the back of our minds, what have they done to bring some of this on themselves? And that's what people were thinking about Jesus. As he was there on the cross, they were mocking him and uh, hurling insults at him. And yet, as he points out here, none of his suffering was for himself. It was all because of our sin. He was doing it for us. Verse 4 says Our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. Now, where are we in this picture? Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. That's you and that's me The Bible says there is none who seeks after God None, none, no, not one It emphasizes that in Romans chapter 3 We have all transgressed the laws of God We have all fallen short of the glory of God We've all gone our own way What's the middle letter in sin? I I want to do things my way Remember Frank Sinatra's song? I did it my way. Boy, there's just something people love about that. I did it my way. And that's our problem. Look at all that's going on in the world today. How we want to do things our way. And we end up making a mess of things. I heard an illustration about doing things our own way just this week. News coming out of Canada. News affecting medicine and those in medicine. They have opened up a conversation in Canada. And you can almost wonder is this conversation coming here eventually. They've opened up a conversation in Canada. Now don't go out of here and misquote me. I didn't say it's up for a vote yet. It's nothing like that. It's a conversation that they've started. And they're saying now in Canada that perhaps they should not allow anybody with religious values or Christian convictions to even so much as be admitted into medical schools anymore. That from the very get-go they need to screen out Christians to be doctors and nurses, screen them out because society has decided that things like euthanasia and abortion and just... uh, Uh, gender reassignment and all that's becoming a part of the medical environment and so their way of thinking is if a citizen of Canada walks out of their home and walks down to the corner clinic they ought to be able to find a medical practitioner to do whatever procedure medically society has voted on is okay and because a Christian Doctor or nurse might have convictions about that. They've said, is it time that we have a conversation about screening them out and not even allowing them in? Somebody brought up, you know what they brought up, right? Somebody brought they said, well, what about Hitler and Nazi Germany? Because remember, he mandated the doctors had to do some awful, torturous Experiments on Jews and minorities Because he didn't even think Jews and minorities Even reached the level, the same level of of personhood And and so he allowed all these atrocious things to be done to them Society accepted it back then But it was wrong Oh, but they don't want to talk about that Oh, that, that was extreme back then Nothing like that would ever happen again Really? But again I heard that story and I thought Is that not an example right there Of what he's talking about here All of us like sheep have gone astray Each of us has turned to his own way Proverbs says there is a way that seemeth right unto a man But the end thereof are the ways of death He says here, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus died for you and for me. He bore my sin and your sin. Romans 3.23, that's what it means when it says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus took our hell that we might partake of his heaven. Listen to what Dr. Wayne Gruden says about the atonement. We may define atonement as follows: The atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to accomplish our salvation. What was the ultimate cause that led Christ that led to Christ coming to earth and dying for our sins? Scripture points to two things. The love of God and the justice of God. The love of God as a cause of the atonement is seen in the most familiar passage in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the justice of God also required that God find a way that the penalty due to us for our sins would be paid. Paul explains that this was why God sent Christ to be a propitiation. That is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath so that God becomes propitious or favorably disposed towards us. It was to show God's righteousness because according to Romans 3.23 in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Here Paul says that God had been forgiven sins in the Old Testament but no penalty had been paid. A fact that would make people wonder whether God was indeed just and how he could forgive sins without a penalty. No God who was truly just could do that, could he? Yet when God sent Christ to die and pay the penalty for our sins... It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Romans three twenty six. Therefore, both the love and the justice of God were the ultimate cause for the atonement. It's not helpful for us to ask, Gruden says, which is more important. However, because without the love of God, he would have never taken any steps to redeem us. Yet without the justice of God, the specific requirement that Christ should earn our salvation by dying for our sins would not have been met. Both the love and the justice of God are equally important. And verse 7 says, he took all of this upon himself and he did not open his mouth. Seven illegal trials. Seven illegal and unjust trials. even by their own standards of that day, they put Jesus through seven illegal, unjust trials on the night that he was arrested, and finally, when they could find no base, Pilate said, "What? I can find no basis for a charge against this man." No basis. He was innocent, and the authorities knew it. And yet he never tried to defend himself. Oh, he could have. Remember when he was arrested and Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear of that guard? And and Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put up your sword. Do you not realize that I could have called 12 legions of angels to come and rescue me? But he didn't. Because he knew that what he was about to do on the cross was the substitutionary atonement that was necessary for your justification and for my justification. You know, I mentioned to you last week, every one of us are either in Adam or in Christ. Romans 5. If you're still in Adam, you die. But if you're in Christ, you live because your sin has been imputed to Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to you. Double imputation. This morning, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? I may be talking to somebody right now that in the invitation in just a moment, when we sing Jesus Paid It All, the Holy Spirit's been working on your heart and drawing you to faith in Jesus and convicting you of your sin. And you need to come forward confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, your status before God changes. It changes. And you're reconciled to God and you're at peace with God. I would assume I'm talking to most people here this morning who at some point in the past would give testimony to having been born again. So what about us? Paul says your life is to be a living sacrifice. In light of the mercies of God, your life is to be a living sacrifice. You are to live a changed life, a redeemed life. You're a new creation in Christ where the old is gone and behold the new has come. Church, Is that the way you're living your life? If not, then you've got sin to confess. And you need to get right with God. Even though in the ultimate sense you're right with God, yet if you're not living your life as a living sacrifice, you've got some business to do with God before you come to this table. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that Jesus paid it all. And even the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the event, testified of that. Such specificity in the prophecy. Such detail. And Lord, this should not surprise us because you're the God of history. You're the God who writes history. Lord, thank you for meeting our need. Thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son. Lord, I pray for that one right now who needs to confess Christ. Give them courage to make it public. Change their lives. Help them to be that new creation in Christ. And Lord, those who give testimony that that has happened at some point in the past, remind us as we come to the Lord's table that each and every day our lives are to reflect the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in His name that we pray.